I expect everybody here knows what it feels like to anticipate something in the near future, some event or circumstance that is so adrenaline rushing that you can hardly stand it. And it messes with your ability to focus your daily life. Yeah, I mean, it might be the birth of a baby, or it might be an upcoming wedding. Uh, for little kids especially, just thinking about Christmas coming is enough to cause you to daydream when you're in a classroom and not even to think about it. I mean, upcoming, exciting things do that to us. It also works when those upcoming events are unpleasant, and perhaps it's not so much excitement as it is dread. Um, maybe uh, you have a test, an exam that you must pass, and you're studying, you're trying. It's hard to think about anything else but getting ready for that. You're, the rest of your life kind of slows down, and you focus on that. Or it might be an exam physically or a surgery even, and you know it's the right thing to do and it's going to help you, but still, it's hard to focus on anything else. Maybe the hardest thing of all, at least I'll just speak for myself, is when you know that someone you care about is terminally ill. I'll never forget, as long as I live, my mother's voice over the phone when she called from the hospital to tell me that my dad had terminal cancer and that he wasn't going to make it, that uh, his time was short. He lived longer than they said, but it was only three months, even so. I was a high school kid, and I remember feeling like, you know, some days in high school are great. You, you go, and you're all excited. Everything is cool. And you come home, and you realize that every good day had a shadow over it, and every bad day that you had for other reasons was made worse by the knowledge that your dad was lying up in a bed upstairs. So I thought about all of these things when I thought about our Lord and his journey to Jerusalem. He had always known in his human understanding that his destination was the cross. There was never an awareness that he had as a human being that did not include the reality that he had come for this very purpose, that one day he would be executed unjustly for the sins of his people. And I began to think as those days narrowed how it must be for him and how maybe, I mean, I just have to speculate, I guess, but can't imagine there was ever a time when that wasn't in the back of his mind. Holy Week would begin with what we call today Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. It was that day that Jesus mounted a donkey and rode up and over the Mount of Olives, down through the Kidron Valley, and then uh, toward the holy city of Jerusalem. And he was surrounded by crowds of pilgrims who were on their way to Passover, and they were shouting and singing songs, and they traveled a distance, and they found themselves with this one who was the center of attention. They began to lay down their palm branches and cloaks in clear fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they shouted. And it was the most 
beautiful and festive day of all. And Jesus was treated like a conquering hero. And there was another crowd that surged out of the holy city to meet them. And, you know, the scholars say that Passover in Jerusalem might have been as many as, as swelling the population to a couple million people. So it was a huge, huge crowd that welcomed him. But, you know, Jesus was the only one in the crowd who knew that on Sunday it was one thing. But by Friday, those joyous shouts would devolve into shrill cries for his murder, his execution. Crucify him, they cried on Friday. And this week, I got to thinking about what it was like to know all those things and to head for Jerusalem the last time. And that's why I chose to focus on this story which is about three days before Palm Sunday. It's probably Thursday. If, you, if today is Palm Sunday, Thursday is when we see Jesus enter Jericho. He had been, he had been up north. The last year of his ministry, he'd, he'd been in Judea, but he took a trip up to Galilee, and then he came down from Capernaum. He crossed over the Jordan River, which was the typical Route. Now, you remember, I hope, that he had traveled up north to Galilee through Samaria one time, and that was very unusual, and good Jews usually wouldn't do that kind of thing. They'd usually cross over. So he traveled down till he was opposite Jericho, this old route, and then crossed through the ancient city of Jericho, and there is when he met the man we're going to look at today, uh, Zacchaeus and that was his route to Jerusalem within just a few days and um, I I thought all along about how he came ever closer to Jerusalem and how it must have been distracting to him and I wonder what it felt like to be traveling through Jericho and knowing there's a guy that he I believe he came through Jericho specifically, not solely, but specifically to meet a wee little man we used to sing in Sunday school named, named Zacchaeus. And um, so I thought this was a story to focus on our Lord's mission. He, he told this story, Luke did, and quoted Jesus for the reason for it all. And in verse 10, the last verse of the text Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And that was what drove him to Calvary. But it also is why he came through uh, Jericho. So let me just talk a little bit about Jericho before we jump into the text itself. Jericho is one of the most uh, ancient cities. I have read articles that claim that it is the, the most ancient city with a continuous population in the world. At least it's one of the most. It is, in fact, the, the city uh, that is most ancient that has a walled uh, fortress component to it. We probably think of Jericho in connection with Joshua 1400 years before this time, when uh, Jericho was the gateway city for 
uh, Joshua's army and for the children of Israel, God was giving the promised land to them, but they were fortified cities all over the place, and Jericho was one of them. And you remember that unusual story in the book of Joshua where um, God gave Joshua uh, this strange battle plan for seven days. They were marching around the city. For six days, they made one circuit, and they were carrying the ark and blowing the trumpet. And then on the seventh day, they marched around seven times carrying the ark, and then the trumpets blew and their people gave a great shout and the wall came tumbling down and the whole city was raised r-a-z-e-d raised well the city was rebuilt multiple times not exactly on the same site so that when jesus came through it was a really a different flavor Um, it was a lovely city with waterworks and palm trees it was always known as a city of palms they had balsam plantations there was a lovely fragrance that that filled the valley as you came through and travelers would often pause on route if they were coming as jesus was to jerusalem Uh, they had a hard climb up to 2400 feet above sea level to jerusalem and and Jericho's below sea level, so they were kind of gearing up for a long, hard walk uh, up that way. I mean, this is the route that Jesus, when he told the story about the Good Samaritan, um, that was the route that he was talking about. And so um, Jericho was, was a place where um, a trading center, and it must have always been packed with people, people coming north and south, east and west, and it was a good place to just relax a little bit. You could buy anything. You could get a big gulp or something on the way, and uh, off you went. Now, it was there that Jesus had this divine appointment with a man named Zacchaeus. And again, the reason for it was to seek and save the lost. So I want to talk to you uh, in this text about, well, I want to talk about the sinner, the Savior, and the salvation. So for the sinner, let's read about Zacchaeus in the first four verses. It says, He, meaning Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Those things often went together, by the way, as you might imagine. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So it might help you at first to think about him as an IRS agent. IRS agents don't have a lot of popularity these days. I don't imagine they ever did, but they're in very poor reputation uh, now. Um, But it's worse than that. I mean, nobody likes tax collectors, unless it's their family, I suppose, or maybe another tax collector. Um, But um, they really didn't like them in the first century world. Palestine was one of the most heavily taxed countries in the ancient world. They were under Roman occupation, which they hated. Who wouldn't? They had an occupying army that levied a tax on them, on poor people. And to collect the tax, they hired Jews. So tax collectors, 
for the Roman government were basically traitors to Judaism and to the nation of Israel. So that's who Zacchaeus was. I mean, tax collectors were not allowed into the temple. They were unclean. And nobody would have had any kind of social interaction with them. If, if they had a barbecue and invited you, you would not go. You would become unclean as a Jew if you went and hung out with them. You'd never invite them to your home, lest you become unclean. They were despised. And I suppose the primary reason was the way they made their living. The Romans said, okay, here is the amount you've got to collect, okay? And beyond that, whatever you want for your own needs. So basically, they raised the money for their own wealth by extorting their own countrymen. They had the weight and reputation of Rome behind them, and so if they were going to collect $1,000 from you, they might say, okay, well, that'll be $2,000, what could you say? You knew the tax was a thousand and that the other thousand was going to go into their pocket. No wonder they were hated and feared, despised, were unclean. Not only that, but Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. Only time this term, chief tax collector, is used in the New Testament. Chief tax collector. So... At the top of a heap of corruption, of people ripping off their own countrymen for their own gain, there was this one guy named Zacchaeus in this region of Jericho. And yet, it almost seems contradictory. The text tells us that he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Now, it might have been just curiosity. Undoubtedly, he had a special interest in Jesus because he would have known cannot have escaped his attention that this Jesus, this wandering rabbi, this miracle worker, who some people say is Messiah, had chosen as one of his disciples a guy named Matthew, who was a tax collector. And how in the world did that happen? And wh why? So it might have been just at the level of curiosity because of his own profession or criminal enterprise if you want to call it that maybe there was more to it maybe God had sparked within him a desire that he hardly even recognized we know that the quote natural man the scripture calls him doesn't have any interest in Christ at all doesn't seek the Lord so any seeking he really was doing for Jesus was a divine grace that had sparked within him uh, more than curiosity. And I suspect that's what it was. The crowd was clustered around the, quote, the route that Jesus was taking through Jericho. People were standing and watching, almost like a parade. And here's this short little guy, you know. If it had been Kevin Hart, he would have been, they'd made room for him, you know. Somebody that people liked or uh, they would have given him a boost but not the tax collector. I mean, they wouldn't actively do anything because he could, reprisal was, was terrible. So they were afraid of him, but they certainly would not give him a sight line to see what they were all seeing. They would have spit on him if they could have and 
felt like they had the impunity to do so. So Zacchaeus was no dummy. He decided that he would, he saw where this route was going and he headed for a large sycamore tree that he assumed he would be able to climb up, conceal himself, and check out this Jesus that he'd heard so much about. I don't know that there was a more corrupt man in all of Jericho. It's, he is justly called a sinner. Um, but I don't want you to forget that everybody else was a sinner too. It wasn't like the people standing in the parade who had potentially been ripped off by this very wee little man were nice and good people. Now, they needed a Savior too. They were also sinners. So it's a little bit of hypocrisy when later they're throwing this term around. Uh, but he was clearly um, the head of a criminal organization. He was like the godfather of um, a criminal family in this region and the top guy at that. That's the sinner. Uh, that's Zacchaeus. Curiously enough, his name means... Um, uh, pure or righteous. It's kind of like naming a 350-pound lineman for the Dallas Cowboys and calling him tiny, you know? It's just, I mean, it's just like the opposite of who he was at this point. So I want to talk to you briefly about the Savior and uh, just show you, it, it should be five to, let's see, yeah. Verse five says, and when Jesus came, to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And he hurried down and came and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Chapters earlier in Luke, chapter 7 and verse 34, um, there was the report that Jesus made of how people were derisively saying, well, he is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yeah, he was. It's no better friend for any sinner than the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the beautiful things about this story, I think, is that it reminds us of how wonderful our Christ is. And how uh, kind and patient and loving he is. I love this portrait of Jesus. Because I want you to keep thinking about the fact that he is eight days from the cross. I mean, if it were one of us, and it couldn't be, obviously. But, I mean, imagine yourself headed for the cross, die for the sins of all God's people. I mean, wouldn't you just say, man... I don't have time for you today. Please get out of my way. I got, I'm stressed. I got a lot on my mind. There's a weight on my shoulders. I, I really don't have time for one more corrupt human being. I, I've, I've had all I can take. I mean, it seems reasonable to me that that's how I would have felt or you would have felt. I think Jesus diverted exactly to this point for Zacchaeus. And this, 
Small quote that we get in verse 5, I think says a lot. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Let me point out a few things. One is how commanding uh, and, well, even before commanding, I guess you'd have to say how personal he was. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus thought he was hidden. How did he know his name? It's funny to see that Bible teachers, not all Bible teachers, believe it or not, are godly evangelical Christians. Some don't believe or don't believe much. They may be experts in the language and the history, but they don't really have any kind of spiritual insight. And some of them seem to think that Jesus must have had an advance party to check this out or had done some research. Or maybe, you know, he just typed into the search engine a chief tax collector, comma, Jericho, and up popped Zacchaeus's name, and then he clicked on Wikipedia and read about him, and so he was ready when he came to the tree. And that's ridiculous, right? Uh, he had known Zacchaeus's name before time began. His name was on his heart. Always had been. This wee, wicked little man. Doesn't it, doesn't it give you a thrill that he would know your name long before anything else? That your name was on his heart. Before you did all the terrible stuff that you've done. And all the things he knew you would do. And he set his affection upon you and held your name close to himself. That's our Jesus. Then, like I said, there's a commanding presence about it. He said, hurry, come down, I must stay at your house. Well, how can you tell somebody who is, he doesn't take, Zacchaeus doesn't take orders from anybody but Rome. I mean, wouldn't you say, and I think you probably should say, hey, Zacchaeus, how's it going? Um, you free for lunch? You doing anything? If, if you are, you know, how about if I treat you to a falafel? Or maybe, I don't know, could I, how about a visit to your home? I mean, that's the way we would speak because we're human beings. We're trying to be a witness to somebody. We're not overbearing. We can't order somebody around. Jesus, on the other hand, says, hurry up, come down. I must come to your house. Really? Well, yeah, because he's the Lord. He, he gets to say that. Um, the, the theologians... The reformers in particular called this um, irresistible grace. There, there is, you know, we all res resist our God's grace all the time, right? We resist him um, in what he tells us to do and we, we disobey and we resist him in all sorts of ways. But irresistible grace doesn't say hey, you never resist him. Irresistible grace says when it's time, when he calls your name, you're coming. And so, Zacchaeus, hurry up, come down, come into your place today. And he came and notice, he hurried, Jesus told him to hurry, 
he came down, Jesus told him to come down, and Zacchaeus received him joyfully. Some people think that the irresistible grace idea makes people puppets. No, it makes them joyous, redeemed people is what it does. He was so happy. Um, And the last thing, I just noticed this little word today. Not only is it personal and commanding, it's urgent. You and I walk through life, we're on a timeline, right? And we, that's all we can see. And we sometimes have a perception. I don't know if you did when you were moving toward Christ. You kind of felt like, eh, something's going on here. I sort of feel, oh, I don't know. I, I got to do some more research. I got to think about Jesus. I, maybe I'll go to church. And you think that way. That's, a way. that's all the way we can think. That's the human side of it. The divine side of it is God says, There's the time. Zacchaeus is coming to me on this day, at this hour, in this second. And Jesus says, come on down. And he comes. Um, I think it's quite wonderful. So I don't know where you are. It might be that you're not yet a follower of Jesus. And if that's the case, um, it's time. You know, listen. Listen to him call for you. Um, There's an urgency about it. That's our Savior. I mean, we could talk forever about Jesus. I love talking about him. The closer you get, the better he looks. The more you hang out with him in the scripture, the more lovely he is. And that's why we love him. And that's why he's the center of everything. But let's continue and talk a little bit about the salvation that our Christ gives Zacchaeus, uh, verse 8, uh, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord. Now, I don't know when this actually took place. It almost sounds like that he just had come down from the tree and the crowd are grumbling um, about Jesus apparently not knowing what an unclean person this was and not to go to his house or anything like that. Oh, he's a sinner. And then Zacchaeus makes this declaration. I wonder if it isn't compressed. And maybe, and I can't prove it, maybe this is uh, a summary of what happened when Jesus went to the guy's house and talked. But in the end, Zacchaeus said, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him today, Salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek to save the lost. Um, Whether it was this is a summary or kind of real time action, I don't know, but it's striking in what it says. One of the things it says about authentic salvation is that there is a great submission involved. First, he says, Behold, Lord. He calls him Lord. I don't think that's just, you know, the word Lord in Greek, kurios, can mean sir. And it can mean Lord that I serve. Um, and we, we're told in Romans that we confess him as Lord. And that was really dangerous in the first century world because Caesar was Lord. And the way that Christians so often got into trouble and ended up... Um, in 
jail or in the arena was they said, no, 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 we can't. We can't. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. We love him. We belong to him now. We'll, we'll be loyal citizens of Rome, but it's it's Christ who's Lord. So I think it means something that he said, Lord. Um, and. I mean, he did everything Christ said immediately, and he began to share about how um, he would follow through with it. God hates pride and stubbornness. And these things are not marks of Christian commitment. Um, humility and submission are. It's, it's humbling to get saved. You've got to admit something's wrong, something so basically wrong that you are, you are unable to save yourself. Prideful people say, what is all the salvation business? I don't need to be saved. I don't need a savior. I'm a good person. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and religion is fine. It helps people, you know, live a moral life and so forth. It's okay for people. But don't tell me about needing to be saved because I, I really don't. The saved person, the person whom Christ is drawing to themselves has no argument anymore. They're, they're done arguing, pretending. Uh, their transparency of their life they know is uh, real to Christ. And so they joyfully run to Jesus, even if it's undignified, and even if they, maybe they pray or they end up on their knees or they're blubbering around acting like someone that their family has never known before. Zacchaeus evidenced a great submission in the way he treated Christ. From curiosity, he came to conversion, I believe. There is a, a great transformation that takes place in the person's life who is truly saved. Again, talk is cheap. And I wouldn't denigrate, I wouldn't put down anything you said when you got saved and you prayed a prayer great i sometimes you might get the impression that i'm down on the sinner's prayer or that it doesn't mean anything no i i believe in the sinner's prayer i believe in uh, you kneeling and asking jesus into your heart yes but i'm only saying that we humans can't tell what's going on when that happens that people can cry and feel bad and pray a prayer but we can't see a transformation. We, time will tell. Jesus knows what's real and what isn't. And at one point, he'll end up saying, sadly, to people who demand certain things from him, and he'll say, well, look, I never really knew you. So he knew, did he know them? Did he know their name and everything? Well, yeah, he knows everybody's name, but he doesn't call everybody's name. Not everybody's his. So this transformation starts at the point of his greatest sin. And Zacchaeus says, and there's the hint in the Greek language of a, a, a movement toward this that's already begun. It's like he's already taken steps to do this. Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. Not just what I'm ripping off in the current tax season, but 
every, my whole estate. I'm going to give away half of it because I know I've affected the poor in a terrible way. And my wealth is going back into the community now. Then he says, and if I have defrauded anyone, and I, I mean, yeah, you have. Every time you've defrauded people, the Mosaic law might say 20% above means restitution. I ripped you off for a thousand bucks. I had another couple hundred and we're in good shape. He says 400%. I'm going to get four times back and it's in motion. So transformation is something that you and I can't necessarily see immediately. And that's why we rejoice when someone prays the prayer and we do all we can to encourage. And, but, you know, time, is, time will tell. It's called fruit. The transformation is one way of looking at it. Another way is saying fruit springs out of new life that has begun deep within. And you can't maybe see it immediately. Sometimes the fruit is small, kind of straggly, but it's fruit. And sometimes, man, there's an abundant harvest. But either way, life produces something, a change within the heart of a person. And in this case, this wee, wicked little man is being changed by our Christ. There's one other thing I think that is great about this. It's a great, there's a great assurance that Jesus gave him, and I think he said it partly for the critics. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. And then it's almost like he's speaking to somebody else, since he also is a son of Abraham. Well, wait a minute. He's a Jew, right? So, of course, he's a son of Abraham. No, 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 no ethnically doesn't make you a son of Abraham he's of the Jewish people right ethnically he was born into a Jewish home he's kind of treated his own countrymen in the worst possible way but he became a son of Abraham because he had the faith of an Abraham who trusted almighty God's solution for his sin long before Abraham knew fully about Christ and here uh, Zacchaeus has, has the sentence of innocent and now one of my children upon him from Christ. I mean, it, there's nothing uh, like Jesus given assurance. And so he does. And then Christ repeats, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So here, here is Zacchaeus living his life. I don't know how old he was. And I imagine if you and I had a videotape that we could fast forward of his life, we'd see some pretty awful things. We'd go, oh my gosh, that guy is, he's a mess. And we'd see him traveling and getting better and better at corruption until he's a wealthy man at the top of the heap. And we would see this moment in time when he met Jesus. From God's point of view, I mean, and it all kind of seems like a happy accident, right? Jesus just happened to be going through Jericho. Normally, the route would go, you know, you go east of the Jordan, come down, and then cross over at Jericho. That was a common way to go. From the divine side of it, there's a timetable here that is, um, that is more accurate than a Swiss watch. It's set in eternity. Today was the day of salvation for Zacchaeus um, and three days from now is Jesus uh, coming in triumph and then another five days later Jesus being nailed to a cross and then 
thankfully, the Sunday morning next is Resurrection Day. We don't know more about Zacchaeus. I, the scripture doesn't say anything more. So we believe, because of what Christ said, that he continued to follow Jesus, that he was a man of God, that he stopped being the chief tax collector. I mean, I would assume that you don't keep doing this rip-off deal uh, anymore. I mean, Matthew didn't. Matthew was a former tax collector, and I think Zacchaeus became a former chief tax collector. Church history has a hint. Now, sometimes these are nothing but legends some guy wrote, and the guy who wrote this was wrote about 150 years after these events. I don't know if it's true. I mean, he verifies that Zacchaeus lived to the end of his days following Jesus. We assume that. But he also said he became a pastor. He became the bishop of Caesarea. I can't prove that in the scripture. But isn't that remarkable if it's true that this guy went from being a really wealthy guy to probably not so wealthy guy, but pastoring God's people in, uh, in one of the great cities of that day. Well, again, couple of reasons I love this text one of them has to do with the character of our Savior and as I said the closer you get to him the more you love him the more you see his beauty the more you want to be around him the scripture draws you in and makes you want to be with this guy who did this our Savior the one we love the most another reason though is to say there's nobody so lost that Jesus can't find him. You might think about a wealthy man who has no interest in the things of this world because he's got them all. He can pay for anything. There's nothing material that he can't get. And people defer to him. Of course, they hate him. I mean, you think about Zacchaeus as somebody, well, yeah, man, that guy's going to hell, but on the way, he's going to enjoy life. No, he came to Christ. He did. Jesus called his name. So it makes me think about this holy week. Um, Good Friday, sunrise service, and the service we have ahead. And I wonder, first of all, I wonder if God's timetable includes you, if you're not yet a believer in Christ. But a, a lot of us are. And I wonder who else it includes. I wonder if we... Maybe the best thing we could do to wind this up this morning is to think about people in our world who need Jesus. And can I tell you, they're no worse off. They're no far, farther away than Zacchaeus. And uh, our Jesus is capable. His, the Old Testament scripture says God's arm is not shortened that it cannot save. And uh, Jesus has got a long, long reach And it reaches all the way from eternity. So maybe as we close, let's pray and pray for people we know. Maybe you don't know their name. Maybe you just know a person that you see regularly that you could invite. How would you like to come to a sunrise service? How would you like to come Easter Sunday morning at my church and have some brunch with us? I think he'd really like it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the evidence once again of your love and care and power and wisdom and sovereign grace. We find it so remarkable that a person so hated by everybody that 
if there had been churches then, they probably wouldn't have thought much about inviting Zacchaeus, and yet Jesus came and called his name, and his life was forever changed. So, Lord, we want to just think right now of people in our world who need Christ as badly as Zacchaeus did, and maybe they don't know it, but it's so obvious to us. So I want to just pause for a second quietly. Why don't you ask the Lord for a person or two that you can invite and pray for? Lord, may we do all we can to be faithful to bring friends and family and loved ones and neighbors and co-workers, regardless of how close they seem to us. May we do our best to be faithful to bring them to Christ. And this season is a wonderful one to do so. Please save sinners. Seek and save them, Lord, as only you can. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.